So we want to bring people together through fermentation. You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. We're your hosts, Brandon and Allison, and this is episode 36. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm uh, ready to talk about some fermentation stuff. Yeah, I am too. I I think you did as well, but watched this really interesting show um, via the internet um, about the microbiology of beer. Now, that was the Microbes After Hours series that we kind of mentioned last time. Did you end up watching it live? Or I I didn't. I was intending to watch it live, but um, you know, it was taped in Washington D.C. and I live in California, so there's a three hour time difference. So I didn't account for that. But I watched it the next day. Yeah, I mean, I I watched it yeah a, a few days later, and and, and that's yeah. the great thing. And it, the the link will be in the show notes too for this talk. I think it's about an hour and fifteen minutes. Um, yeah, that sounds about right. It's worth listening to if a person's interested in the microbiology of beer or even microbes. Or beer, and it's how to how to brew beer. Um, I think one of the speakers, Rebecca, kind of briefly talked about how to brew beer, which was interesting. Yeah, seeing kind of it, it the from the photos that she was showing in her slideshow, it was looking like it's the like a more of a um, an advanced craft brewing setup. I mean, I, I guess I don't know what level of of craft where craft brewing is at this point. Um, it seemed kind of like a, a pretty fancy setup. You- yeah. I don't really know where they go from when you go from being a craft, what you would think of as a, a person who's buying craft beer. When you go from a craft brewery to a middle-sized brewery to the, you know, the Anheuser-Busch's and the Miller's Coors. Cause I feel the same way. Dogfish Head's getting big enough that everyone knows of Dogfish Head. You know what I mean? It's, it's yeah, hard I mean, to decide at what point do you get cut off and you're really not considered a craft brewer anymore. And what what would you say is the defining character of a craft brewery my, uh, other than just being small or just yes. being a startup or, or just being a focused on quality more so than big, big beer? Yeah, you know, I was just thinking that the I guess the term craft brewery is more more so related to the uh what you said like the quality and the uniqueness of making different types of beer, maybe not necessarily the size of the brewery. Um so, I don't know. That's an interesting thing that I would like to know the answer to. What what people's opinions of what defines a craft brewery is it because it's small or large production or is it just based off of the ingredients that they use and i think it's that way with i think uh, any kind of foods is uh, the the concept of when does something no longer is no longer craft or artisanal and when does it turn i I mean is it is it, it like in music where people view it as they've sold out or you know that they just gone mainstream and too big i mean at, at what point if i mean if if someone if a food company or or beer company becomes popular based on uh quality and um taste and partly popularity i mean at, at what at, at some point inevitably they're going to scale and right. it's really hard to stay small, I guess, if, if, unless that's really a part of the values, but then that's, that's where it just it starts to become difficult. I mean, what's the, what's the boundary? Right. I think it, it's a very interesting thought because yeah, everyone wants to be successful and you want to see something that you're passionate about become, um, you know, uh, you want to see it and have see everyone enjoying it and that fulfill, that's very purposeful and fulfilling for the person but then it's kind of like it is kind of like the music thing that you mentioned did they sell out uh in a way i, I in a way i don't really think so because dog i like dogfish head beer i think it's really good but i can get it in california which is and they're located in delaware you know so they must be producing so much beer that distributing so much. And one of the pictures Rebecca showed was, and I think she mentioned that they can bottle like 600 bottles of beer a minute. That's, and that just seems 
crazy. That's just crazy amount of beer that they're constantly producing and fermenting. So it's just interesting to see the difference between a, a craft, say a craft brewery where they only sell beer to the neighborhoods, like one of the breweries down the street from me versus Dogfish Head that falls in that same category. And they're producing and bottling 600 bottles of beer a minute, you know? Yeah, that's that's definitely a lot of beer. And I think this is where it gets more to the story behind something and, and what uh, maybe it's a little bit of romanticizing different things to a certain extent. I mean, looking at the photos of uh, on the, this slideshow of just the, the lab and the stainless steel equipment, there's definitely some benefit to having that kind of technology, which scale allows a company to afford. Mm-hmm. So there's, is there, do you think in the brewing process and working with the microbes that when dealing with a larger batch, it affects things in different, I'm assuming larger is going to affect things slightly different, but does it affect taste in a noticeable difference or or quality in a noticeable difference? I mean, how large of a batch can, can a person, do you know anything about that kind of stuff since you're, you know, a lot more about beer? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, it's, I, I don't think that if, as long as you still are using high quality ingredients and using the same amount of time and personal energy to make sure that a small scale batch of beer, like five gallons of beer versus, you know, 32 gallons of beer tastes the same and you're still putting the same amount of effort and quote unquote love into it, then I don't think that taste and quality or taste and a difference in quality will be noticeable. Um, I think that it, if anything, it would more of just be the kinetics of fermentation might be slightly different because you have much more. Um, but it shouldn't be in a way because you're you're using proportionally the same amount of ingredients, barley, hops, water, yeast. So I don't know. Have you ever experienced that? Have you made like a really big batch of kombucha or um, sauerkraut and have noticed like if you make a small batch versus a larger batch? Have you ever experienced anything like that? Well, I guess I would say I mean, it's kind of difficult to say because they are different vessels. They're uh, different sizes. Sometimes I'm like I say, I have a, a harsh crock, the big ceramic crock with the the moat around the, the edge to to. Mm-hmm for water so that uh, carbon dioxide can get out, but contaminants and air don't get in. I have a lot of issues with that, but that's a 7.5 liter crock. So doing large batches of sauerkraut with that, I don't know what's wrong with my crock. I've just never had much uh, success with it. So I don't know if that's size difference versus a quart mason jar or a gallon mason jar uh but I guess if nothing else, the size may make it possible for more things to go wrong. I mean, there's a lot more substrate for contaminating bacteria and microbes to um, to get to. I mean, I, I, even though you're using the same amount of ingredients, there's still more surface area, I would assume, or open space relative to the, the amount of... Uh, even if... There's just a lot more space for little microbes yeah. to get into, I would think. Yeah, yeah, and there there would be. I guess, I mean, it would be interesting to get uh, to see if you have the exact same container. Say you have a a one gallon crock, and the then you have your seven gallon crock or you know fifteen gallon crock, but every and every you were to standardize everything. I wonder if there would be a difference in taste. It would take longer to ferment the larger crock because there's more substrate, like you said, and that would take longer, but it, would that be a difference? Would that be the only difference is not only would it would not necessarily because it would take longer, but there's more chances of extra things that you can't control changing the way that the, whatever it is you're making tastes, that would be something I could see how it could be different. And even in beer, if you had standardized it all the way through, like maybe taste-wise, that would be a difference created by the beer itself. Well, yeah, like maybe Hmm. the differences that a person has to, the differences that 
a company has to account for based on size, unless a company beer or any kind of fermented foods or any food, I guess, for that matter. I mean, if but fermented foods uh, looking at or, or cheese or different things using larger vats versus a place that uses the same process, only a lot of them, it seems like that would be a lot more consistent. But when a person has to make compromises or maybe not compromises, has to change things in order to do a larger batch, maybe it would it could potentially affect taste. I mean, this is all kind of speculation because we don't really have any kind of thing to, to set it by. Um, right. But, but it is in, they, these are interesting things to think about. And at some point, I would like to do a, a huge batch of kimchi, like do a, a fall harvest kimchi because I knew someone that did a like a 55 gallon drum of of kimchi i'd like to do that just i guess i'll have to get a food grade drum and deal with the plastic even though i like to use glass or ceramic and and mm-hmm. and then try and do another plastic food grade tub of uh, of say a gallon and i think it'd be really interesting to see if there are you know granted the fermentation time would be different um the gallon will take less time than your 55 gallon drum but i that would really interest me. Uh, let me know if you do it. I think that that would be a cool project to take on and just just taste-wise, not anything else, just taste-wise, texture, there is a difference. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's got to be some, but is it noticeable? Is it perceivable? Is it is it possibly better? I mean, there. If, if larger things are, the more things have to be paid attention to potentially and the larger a company is, the more money they have to invest in those kind of things. So maybe more attention to detail will make it even better. Right, right. Um, and, and you'll have more employees or uh, people that can that can t- have time because they can afford to pay people to be there 24 hours a day or have someone there 24 hours a day to just be constantly taking samples and testing it and tasting it and plating it onto different types of medias to make sure that it's only yeast growing or bacteria or whatever whatever the organism is that they want to have for whatever the product is but huh it's an interesting uh i guess i've never really thought about it as the definition between a craft to go back to what we were talking about uh that started this little conversation the craft brewing industry i mean that's pretty craft brewing is kind of based off of just size of the brewery itself and production wise, that's a pretty general term, but yeah. And as far as I know, some of them, uh, you know, the, the ones that have more of that craft feel are actually owned by larger, um, beer making makers. And, and so some of it is just kind of, I I guess that's more what it comes down to is just have to evaluate each putting into categories and lumping them may not be the easiest way for someone to understand what kind of quality that a place has, because I think of craft beer as that being one of the main focuses and, and, and attention to detail and, and trying new things or different things. And so even if a place is large or became large due to success, then it just, each one would have to be evaluated different. I'm sure some kind of just sell out and it's like, yeah, we're making lots of money and who cares if the the quality goes down it because it's a lot easier to do with at this scale. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it probably just depends on each one. I don't think it'd be easy to lump into each, each beer place. Right. Yeah. Because I, I don't think ideally the, the, um, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, very large breweries in, in California that are still considered craft breweries, but you can still go to Trader Joe's or you could go to, um, you know, the grocery store and they're on the shelves versus the smaller breweries the craft breweries or even the artisanal cheeses and the kombuchas and all of that stuff. Um, the smaller places aren't as easy to get because they obviously don't have the marketing or the manpower to get it out to the grocery stores or even the, the, the production standpoint to fill all the orders. But so it's just an interesting how, how different the, the term craft beer craft products can be. Yeah. And it's, Taste is subjective. So even if a person, I mean, a person may feel and actually taste the difference of the person that's sweating in their small little craft shop that is, you know, barely making 
any money because they're working all the time trying to start up a business. Maybe, maybe that does taste better to some people because they know the story behind it and they know it's not just a, you know, a bunch of employees that care about a product, but it's not just, it's not the same as that, that really small shop, the, the garage or, or whatnot that is so romantic to think about. I mean, but then again, at the same time, it is kind of true sometimes at home, like say when I'm fermenting things at home, it's not always, but sometimes tastes better in my perception partly because of all the story that went behind it. I'm not marketing to myself, but I am doing something. I am putting uh, sweat and time and effort and sometimes tears into something uh, to create it. And then it's either enjoyed or it's, it's horrible, but at least even if it's mediocre, I'm much less disappointed than I am if I had just purchased that product and it was mediocre. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of passion and uh, I mean, there's always a lot of passion that, goes into any sort of um, fermented product that you would make at home or, um, you know, talking about the small man who's starting, trying to start up his, you know, cheese shop. And he's the one that's blood, sweat and tears are going into, into the product. I mean, yeah, I think there is a, I think a lot of the craft industry is a lot of uh, just the idea and you know, the story behind it and you get very attached and you, sometimes you personally get to know the, the shop owner. Um, and it's you you want to support them because of the, the passion that they have. I think it's a lot of it's a lot of passion behind anything that's ever created. I make stuff in my kitchen. Sometimes it's terrible. Like, you know, sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's mediocre, like what you said. But every single time I do it, I even if it's terrible, I think I did this and I made it myself and I have a lot of passion behind it. Put a lot of time into this time and effort. I might just make things. It's, it's part of that connection. It's part of that. Uh, I guess it's that whole uh, one way to look at, at fermentation in in general and in, in the term culture and in looking at how we can all connect. I mean, these people connect through stories and food and and food, especially, I mean, any of these Mm -hmm. kind of things. I mean, it's, it's something that people want to connect with. It's innately maybe a human thing to connect over or about. And so I guess it makes sense that when the marketing feels genuine regarding a small place, that that makes sense as to why it sometimes tastes better or, uh, you know, can make the, the whole, the whole thing more enjoyable. Or if I'm at home making something and I can share with other people, this thing that I worked on, and then I can share a story along with it, with the people that I'm, that I'm sharing it with. I mean, all those things I think do, heighten the sensation and the experience. And I mean, his taste is a another weird science where things are sometimes really based on perception and we all probably taste different anyway. So it's, those are the kind of things that I find really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really fascinating too. I, I, everyone has a different perception of what tastes good to them versus other things. Um, yeah. Like you don't like kimchi. You know, well, I guess it's kind of like, maybe I, 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 I'm willing to try it again and make it maybe what I said the last time when we were on episode yes. 35, I was talking about how it was probably too spicy for me. So, I mean, again, that's just perception. Um, I personally don't like really spicy food. Uh, but yeah, it's all about perception. But the thing was, like, I love the kimchi I made, even though it was very spicy. But I loved it because I was the one that made it and... I got it to work and it was safe enough to eat that I didn't get sick. So, um, hey, I mean, <laughs> that's one way to evaluate your ferments. If you don't get you, sick, then you did good. Then you did good. You did great. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I think, yeah, I think it's just, I think everyone is always gets very passionate about food. Even if you're not a foodie, you don't have to be a foodie to be passionate about pizza. There's probably one pizza place in your neighborhood that's better that you perceive is better than another pizza place or sushi or whatever the food is. So and it's, sometimes it's not quality that makes those things. What pe- draws people to them. Sometimes it's other aspects or the people that they know or the, the experience that they had there. The, ex- I think experience is a big thing. Um, I mean, looking back on my childhood, there's certain foods that I have, uh, I have an attachment to or certain places we would go and eat when I was a child that the food may not be good, but it was more of the experience and the memory that is associated with it. So I would say also with your uh, mention of pizza, made me think of uh, kimchi pizza. And if 
you want another way to try and enjoy kimchi. That was one thing that I've, I've tried adding kimchi to a pizza, just kimchi and cheese and homemade sourdough pizza crust. Huh. You got yourself a little, little fermented pizza. I don't, I, I honestly cannot even imagine what that tastes like. I don't know if that, in my mind, it's just, I'm, my mind has been blown. Kimchi pizza. Yeah. And it's, what did it taste like? I just, I mean, I'm just thinking of what kimchi tastes by, like by itself and then sourdough dough. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, the thing I would do differently, and I, at one point I had planned on making a lot of different kinds of fermented pizzas, but kimchi is about where I, I stopped a long time ago. But what I do remember about it is that I would probably chop up the pieces more of the kimchi. Like I probably mm-hmm. would just take it out of the jar and chop it up. So then it's, it's a little bit smaller because sometimes, you know, like eating pizza with things that are not, I, I don't make huge chunks of, of Napa cabbage or anything, but you know, when it's a little bit bigger, it just takes away from some of the enjoyment for myself when I'm taking a bite out of the pizza. And so and uh, pretty much the whole pizza comes with that one bite. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like when cheese rips off the pizza and then it's just, that's just, it's over from there. Yeah. So, yeah. But I did like the concept of having a, a triple fermented uh, pizza being sourdough, cheese, and and kimchi. And then the only thing I didn't do was ferment the tomato sauce for it. But that would be another aspect I could try. Okay. So you made the cheese that also went on the pizza. No, I, I didn't make it. But it was fermented. Oh, so oh, I figured okay. it was a triple yeah. ferment item. It, it, we made the sourdough a, a bread and, and, and the kimchi. So figured I could take the, the third one just just because yeah you could just buy it sometimes it's just you know it's depending on the type of cheese depends on you know it's sometimes easier just to get it from your local artisanal cheese shop Um, exactly because they put in the blood sweat and tears and they have the memory and you're enjoying it and supporting them yeah gotta love the the taste of blood sweat and tears Mm. (laughs) Mm, delicious I guess in that way, maybe we were planning to talk a little bit more about the microbiology of, of beer talk, but we're kind of in the contamination or different stuff and maybe swing back to uh, microbiology of beer at the end. Does that work? Sure. Yeah, that works for me. Since we're so much into food at this point anyway, might as well. Yeah. Might as well keep going. Um, Because that's, that's kind of the the thing that comes with that blood, sweat and tear is, is uh, the, the chance for contamination Um, and, they had mentioned some of that in that, that microbiology of beer about, about contamination of beer. And we already kind of hinted at at the beginning about things that could potentially go wrong, Uh, but just in general with fermentation, there's lots of things that can go wrong in the process. And some of those things, especially if it happens to someone the first time they try fermenting, it can be very disappointing and discouraging and people don't try it ever again. Like say yogurt might be the first thing that someone ever ferments. And if it turns out runny or not as thick as they're used to, then it's all over from there. But, uh, but hopefully usually people, if they start with something that's simple enough and are patient enough, it will usually turn out. But sometimes there's things like say, Oh, I've had mold on a kombucha scoby. And, uh, that one is definitely disappointing when that happens. So, Mm -hmm. so any of these kind of contaminants that just, just, have you, have you done kombucha? No, I haven't. I have been meaning to go. Uh, I know that you can uh, make your own SCOBY, but I've just never had the time to do it. But there's a guy in, the, in my area that would be willing to give me one of his babies. Um, but have you did have you made? You just said you made kombucha before. Yeah. Did I, you make your own SCOBY, or did you get that from someone else? I have made my own. Um, I documented that on the, the, I'll put a link in the show notes for that one. Um, documented that on the firm up blog and, and it's really easy to do just putting a, a jar of, or a, a bottle of, of ready-made kim, uh, com, all these ferments, kimchi, kombucha, of a bottle of kombucha, and then putting that in a wide surface area bowl. So shallow and, and wide, and then pouring it into that and covering it with some kind of, uh, cheesecloth or, or just cotton cloth or anything to keep any fruit flies or anything out. And then give it a few weeks, depending on temperature. And then there will be a SCOBY that's formed on there as long as it was live kombucha that was bought at the store. But, um, it, I think it generally works better to use ones that are from local vendors. Although some of the large big name ones, well, obviously it's local to someone, but for the national brands also, I've heard reports that those work sometimes as well. It just depends on if they're still doing 
a natural ferment lick uh, with the SCOBY. So, right, right. Um, but no, I haven't. I haven't had the chance to make any kombucha. The um, that's the well. That's the one disappointing thing is when kombucha does get moldy. Always the right with most things, mold isn't necessarily a sign of having to toss the entire thing. But with kombucha, it's always the recommendation that yeah, I should just toss it. It, why do they recommend that why can't you just like um not strain it but kind of scoop the mold off of the top because it's usually just top i mean mold does only grows on the top of things it's not inside the it wouldn't be inside the media or the kombucha well that's what i would think and and i forget what it is um actually if i remember correctly uh that in wild fermentation the book by sander katz he had said that you could just take the mold off in his later book, the art of fermentation, or maybe it was just in a talk that I, I saw him give or, or whatnot, that he talked about how he, something, something that he had ta- uh, heard or read or talked with Paul Stamets, who does those mushrooms and fungi work mm-hmm. had said something about with kombucha in the, I don't actually remember anything, so I'm just going to stop there. But something about it was a little different. Whereas like, say, sauerkraut is something that I will just scrape off or uh, it usually some people are really taboo about that and worried that it's it's penetrated and uh, down deep into the substrate. But well, I wonder if it's um, because I think molds, if I remember right from food micro class, um, I think molds can make um, um I think they're called mitotoxins. Uh, so maybe that's why you would need to throw it away because they produce toxins. So even if you scrape off the mold on the top, the toxins would have been, it would have filtered through the whole product itself. Yeah. Um, my, in, microtoxins. They're called microtoxins. Microtoxins are probably a slight risk, I guess, for myself. And this isn't a health recommendation or anything, but I just, for myself, like most molds on things, I'll just kind of scrape off because there's probably microtoxins in a lot of foods that i've let um be in contact with air or anything anyway that's been mm-hmm. uh, i mean so I, don't, I guess i don't get too concerned about those kind of things as long as it doesn't change the flavor texture um and that's what's more important to me and then if i ever found out otherwise that i'm slowly killing myself or quickly killing myself by digesting these things sure i would i would change it but it's it's really hard to find and, and the the clear clear things about that and people have throughout history been fermenting and scraping off the scum on sauerkraut uh for that's just a a common practice so whether or not that's a good thing or not plenty of things were done at different points in history that were also uh, not good for health or otherwise so it's questionable i mean contamination is definitely something that happens with ferments and in kombucha the main thing with that one is since the scoby is generally floating at the top the mold is right if it's going to form it's going to form right there on top of the scoby Mm-hmm. Which that's the disappointing thing is that even though maybe you could peel off the top part of the scoby and keep the bottom part, um, it's it, it's likely not going to be the best producing scoby from then on out. So then a person has to either find someone else that has it, or hopefully they've have multiple batches going or different things like that. So the most recent, I actually just had mold on one that I had started a few weeks ago, and uh, one batch had mold, the other did not, and they were both old scobies for i hadn't made any kombucha for months and there's probably some recommendations by some people not to do it but i've had good luck i can leave scoby like one of them was forgotten in a closet and the other was in the refrigerator the one in the refrigerator successfully uh produced a scoby a new scoby without any issue the one that was in the cupboard that one did not do so uh do so well it did start to form like a baby scoby on top a thin film because the the scoby itself the original mother had sunk to the bottom but it was mm-hmm. forming the 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 thin scoby but it was much thinner than the other one so it was i think probably just one of those things where contamination it just wasn't yeah. it wasn't it didn't grow fast enough and something else took jumped in right yeah and that's yeah it's, it, yeah i can see that being being the issue cuz once something not necessarily bad but some bad meaning something that you don't want to have happen not that it would taste affect taste or flavor or anything but when something is contaminated in that way for fermented products then it doesn't form a scoby as well or um because things other things start to take over and then eventually down the road you get 
those off flavors and texture differences. But um, I can see that happening if you leave that your SCOBY, your refrigerated SCOBY turned out better than your cupboard one. The, I think it's because the temperature and also, you know, everything about the refrigerator is much more controlled than your countertop or your cupboard. Well, definitely. And the only thing that was interesting about the one that was in the refrigerator is it wasn't even sitting in any kombucha. It was, it was just, just right in a, in a jar because I was actually going to use it for an art project at one point that I forgot about, you know, drying because when kombucha scoby is dried, it turns into kind of a, a leather thing. Is that, is that you honking your horn? Um, today is trash day, oh, so okay. it's just the trash man coming to pick up our trash. Oh, to I tell guess you he's that just, he's happy and hey. in a good mood. Uh, yeah, it's a beautiful day today, so I guess he's just having a good good day today. Sorry about that. Hey, that's all right. I mean, that's the, <laughs> the joy of podcasting. I'm not quite sure why he was honking his horn. It's not, I mean. He likes ferments too. Honk for fermenting, I, I guess. Honk, honk for ferments, I guess. So. Yeah. So Anyway, that's my trash man. <laughs> nice to meet your trash man. Um, and, uh, yeah, maybe sometime we can talk about all the, the, the fermenting and compost and trash and different stuff like that, non-food related decomposition. And, but, uh, I mean, uh, back to contamination though. I mean, some of the other stuff that, that kind of does happen. I, I go back to sauerkraut because that's a very common one for people to start with because it's also one of the most simple things for people to ferment and, and doesn't require a starter culture or a SCOBY or anything else. So, Right. Well, like- the most important part of that one is just like, I mean, you just cut up all of your fruits or your vegetables and you add salt, which is... Which is a contamination inhibitor of sorts. Yeah. It keeps it, it creates an environment that the lactic acid bacteria will prosper in, but it's not, uh, fewer other bacteria will be able to use that, um, use that space. And especially once the lactic acid bacteria that are inherent in the, the, the cabbage or whatever other vegetables are being used are, you just create a prime environment for them to just prosper and grow. So. So mm-hmm. be- before anything else can take over, that lactic acid then protects it and lowers the the pH and different things like that. But some of the things that can can go wrong is is if, although there is sauerkraut that doesn't use salt or doesn't use much, it's a lot harder to get the texture right. So even if there's not visible bacteria or mold contamination in sauerkraut, some of the things like to uh, like the the texture can be off. That's not necessarily a full-on contaminant, although sometimes it can be. Like the slimy and ropey texture is definitely from uh, certain bacteria that generally wouldn't be there. And that's from too much salt, too high of temperature, too low of temperature, different mm-hmm. things to, to work with. But those are the kind of things that come with, with sauerkraut um, specifically. And uh, that's just something where it comes down to sometimes it's environment and then sometimes it's it's cleanliness and not that, again, I mentioned last time how I'm sometimes not that clean. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not, it's not that I'm not clean. It's that I'm not necessarily that um, sterile or, or I kind of, well, kind of like the, the kombucha that I had sitting in the cupboard for quite a few months. You know, I'm still willing to give it a try, even though it's arguably was a lot weaker at that point. So, you know, but I'll still, right. I'll still give something a try. You know, it's, it, it hasn't been in um, the best of conditions and it's, I guess sometimes that same way, you know, I, I kind of go with uh, because I got into fermentation with Sander Katz's books that I kind of go with his, his mentality of uh, cleanliness, not still sterility. Um, but that's just yeah. because most things that I'm fermenting don't require a sterile environment. They just need to be washed with, they just, the, there can't be any dirt or grime or anything. And, and even down to no, invisible, like things I can't see, I just, they, it needs to be fully washed with soap. Um, right. And there's a difference between cleanliness uh, and then sterility. Sterility means that nothing is going, I mean, that is sterile. That has been gone through usually some type of sterilizer in, um, in a lab setting, it's an it's called an autoclave, but um, you know that's different. And that'd than be the same as like washing a, stuff. An autoclave would be similar, say at like home, someone might use a pressure cooker. Is that going to give it a similar result, or is it different? No, they're both very similar. Um, I think a, a, an autoclave um, is a little different because it does get a little hotter. The 
and the more pressure is added um, to get it to be hotter be, than just a pressure cooker. Um, I, I mean, I don't really know the exact differences, but I just know if you put something in the autoclave, some type of food product, say like um, um, like bread or um, any any other type of food, it's going to come out like very, very like mushy and it basically won't be food anymore. But with a pressure cooker, the point is to say you're canning green beans. When you pull out the green beans, they're not just mush. They look like green beans still. So that's, the I mean, that kind of difference, I'm not sure. But that's the point of a pressure cooker is to sterilize the microbial load needing to decrease to get basically kill everything that would be any sort of contaminant microbe in the jar like say with green beans clostridium botulinum being yes. the main one that pressure cooker versus boil canning you're not going to get the right kind of temperature without boiling for many 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 hours to be able to kill the clostridium right, right. cuz you need that pressure uh, that the pressure canner creates to increase the temperature so it would kill that clostridium botulinum bacteria um but yeah there's you know cleanliness is very different than standard sterilizing something and and you mentioned you're not as quote-unquote clean but in fermentation it doesn't that's not necessarily an issue because uh the bacteria themselves are going to create lactic acid or decrease the ph that 4.2 ph number that i talked about in the last podcast to make the condition Ideal enough for good bacteria to grow, but deters the other harmful bacteria that would make you sick from growing. Well, what do you think of, like, say, the difference with cleanliness versus being sanitary? Like, so, um, so like, spraying something with, a, like, a disinfectant or such. I mean, do you do that with your your ferments or anything? If I'm brewing beer, then I do use a sanitizer to uh, sanitize my carboy and anything that touches the beer um, just because the it takes a little longer. Uh, it's just a different environment. But when I'm making, say, sauerkraut, um, I don't really – I mean, I clean it with soap and water and I kind of slightly wash the uh, – the, the cabbage and the fruits and the vegetables that are going into it. But I don't, you know, I don't sanitize any of those jars. Jars. Well, I guess that's the thing. I, with beer making, I, not having done it myself, I'm assuming you're not sanitizing any of... Are, are things like hops or additives, are those sterilized, pasteurized, or done anything? Or they go in kind of like cabbage in sauerkraut? It's, it's you know, kind of wash it off, wash off visible dirt, but it's not getting sterilized by any means. Well, in brewing, um, it goes through, and this is kind of talking about the um, microbes after dark um, that we had mentioned at the beginning of this this podcast. Um, all the ingredients that go into making beer, they go through um, a boiling process um, and to kill off any sort of bacteria that uh, or mold or yeast that are already in the water or the barley or the grains that they're that you're using to brew your beer, but um, also, hops are natural um, uh, bacteriostatic or, or, uh, plants that would the, – the oils that they create and other chemicals that they create um, inhibit bacteria or – I think it's mostly bacteria, but inhibit organism, microorganisms from growing. It's just one of those natural things. The same thing as I think like cloves ha- are naturally bacterial inhibit- inhibitors. Same with um, uh, cinnamon. I think cinnamon is too. Um, what about so does garlic count in that? Yeah, I think garlic falls in that same category. It at least um, has some antimicrobial properties. I don't know. Yeah. At what extent? Yeah, yeah. I don't know the extent of like, how how antimicrobial these things are, but enough so that they wouldn't. It would deter the bacteria or yeast or microorganisms from growing. Um, so when you're making beer, it does go through like a boiling step um, to sterilize or i'm sorry sanitize i quote unquote i guess it's sterilized too there shouldn't be anything in there that would keep the yeast that you would be adding to the beer from growing would that be kind of like a step before sterile as in 
pasteurized or is pasteurized a form of pa- uh, a, a, a lower form of pasture of sterilization you know like so how there's uht versus pasteurization where uht is going to get rid of everything and so is sterility only something that really can be used as a term when there's nothing in it or is it is it a relative term as in there's relatively nothing in here or is it specific to contamination there's nothing in this it's sterile from anything that's going to contaminate this well i always think of it i guess from the standpoint of if you go to a hospital you and you're going to have an operation you want all of those you scalpels and all the equipment that they're going to use on you to be sterile meaning there is nothing on those there are there's no microbes or anything on there that would potentially make you sick in the food industry um I can't remember. There's two different words that they use. I'm going to use the term food, food sterile, meaning that anything that would be harmful to you has been killed, um, whether okay. that's through pasteurization um, or UHT pasteurization. I, the difference between just pasteurizing and then UHT, say milk, is UHT milk is shelf stable, meaning it, basically there's not there's nothing in there, nothing that's going to microbial wise that's going to start to grow and it's shelf stable um so it can last longer because the anything that happens with food and um and is that deals with a uh, long term shelf life i think the first thing they always think about is is this microbial most microbially stable meaning everything and it's going to die or the the environment it's in is going to inhibit anything from growing like molds and yeasts and bacteria. Um, so there is a difference, I guess it's just in the terms of how you're using the word s- sterile. Um, food products that you get on at this, at the store are food sterile, um, that they are, there's n- nothing should be growing that would hurt you. Which is why, say a lot of fermented foods that are canned say such as sauerkraut or sometimes kimchi that's on the shelf in a non-cooled area a lot of times that's pasteurized because those the it's not necessarily that the bacteria would be harmful it's that it's it affects the packaging so when you talk like when we're talking about in the food industry the concerns are a little different because they don't want things to explode on the shelves or different stuff like that. Like that's got to be in the refrigerated section unless they pasteurize it. So, um, but those are the kind of things that sterility in the food industry would be, would be important. It's like, it's either going to hurt you. It's going to make it moldy or it's going to make this explode kind of right. Would that be a safe way to look at it? Or Yeah, that's kind of a safe way to look at it. The other reason too, uh, th- to add on to those three points that you just said, is also the, um, you know, bacteria and uh, microorganisms can decrease food quality. Um, you know, it can be shelf stable for a very long time, but the quality of the food, because eventually say bacteria will start growing in it that w- and start consuming and making byproducts and t- have the quality of the food decrease. So it's, it's basically those four reasons for s- food sterility, which is different again than, um, you know, hospital st- sterility. And so again, for the home fermenter, if they're making beer or wine, things that, or in sometimes I guess when wanting to pretty much anything where a starter culture is going to be added or, or cultures are going, it's, it's as opposed to a wild ferment. So separating sauerkraut, cleanliness is fine with uh, something where a starter culture is going to be added, sometimes a little bit more focus on sanitization and sterilization are important. Like say for uh, for yogurt, a lot of people will um, bring the milk up to over 180 degrees and hold it. Part of that is for thickening because it's evaporating some of the liquid and it's changing the, the protein mm-hmm. structure. But at the same time, it's, it's also making a clean slate for anything yeah. that's going to be added to it. Um, yeah. The difference being it, with beer versus yogurt is a person doesn't need to sterilize the equipment being used. Um, although, and sometimes in cheese making, it is it is recommended, and and I've always kind of skipped over that. And I think I might have to start following that because it, cheese making, beer making might be a little bit more similar in that way. Yeah, uh, beer making is pretty similar in cheese making. Like you should 
uh, sanitize anything that's going to touch your beer because you never know what it could be growing on the spoon you're about to put into your beer and that could contaminate the beer. Same as cheese making and stuff. But um, yeah, the the boiling step is pretty important when it comes to brewing. Where uh, For winemaking, there's not even, I mean, basically you just crush grapes. Um, um, you de- you take off all the stems and you it goes through some sort of press if you're making white wine or um, the they're crushed very mildly if you're making red wine. I won't go into the details, but basically there is no sort of um, sterilization step that's added or needed. And you don't really have to worry about if your um, equipment is uh, sanitized. In wine, because the pH, yeah, not at all, because the pH of the grapes are so low that any sort of acid that's going to, that's already there is going to inhibit a lot of the bad bacteria or yeast um and um usually by that time that you might be concerned they're being out competed and outgrown by the yeast that you added to make the wine so it's it's interesting how in certain certain types of food products you really don't have to worry too much about um uh sterility or sanitizing stuff and it's just mostly cleanliness whereas other foods um like cheese making and brewing you really need to be careful with sanitizing everything that touches your product. And I wonder if that somewhat comes down to it's, it kind of falls apart thinking about it, but thinking about say beer making, if I understand correctly versus wine making wine, I don't know, accidentally or otherwise, I don't know the history of wine, but I mean, wine is something with the, just the inherent yeast on the grapes is going to ferment if crushed uh, anyway, without even adding new yeast or specific yeast or whatnot, there's going to be a wild fermentation of sorts if if crush a bunch of grapes and leave them. And with uh, with milk products, it's kind of the same way. It's if it's not been pasteurized milk, it's going to clabber. It's going to sour, and mm-hmm. at some point, that turned into the different kinds of yogurts that people enjoy. And uh, and then cheese a little harder when you're talking about something sitting that long. Yeah, I've heard like the. The, the legend stories of certain kinds of cheeses. Someone finds a block of cheese in a, in a, that's been down in a cave or something like that, that was left over and it molded over just right. And it tasted great. But I mean, so, so maybe to a certain extent, but it's, it seems like beer is something that's kind of been manufactured a lot more. I mean, there's, you're, you're not going to just get spontaneously fermenting barley waste or otherwise, are there, or did that come out of a natural fermentation process as well that it was discovered? Do you know? Um, like I think like with, way back in history, I think I'm not sure how they developed like um, adding the water to. The, I'm going to assume that they just added who they as and people a long time ago added water to grains, and then um, anything that was on the grain would start to ferment the available sugar, and then somehow it created this tasty quote-unquote early beer um okay so, so i'm was. not sure the history of 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 that like how that came about because with winemaking it makes sense like you have a bunch of grapes and they were crushed and then naturally this the uh the the microorganisms on the outside of the um grape started to ferment and made wine um so i'm gonna assume it's the same way slightly with brewing same okay. kind of idea um but i I guess it's now that they know what um, or brewers know what um, yeast is and that's a way to control brewing um, and to get high quality beers by adding specific types of yeast strains that are known to produce certain styles of beer. Um, I think a lot more control um, and thought is put into sanitation um, and, uh, and cleanliness. I know Rebecca, um, I think her last name is Newman, who is, who's on the Microbes After Dark history or microbiology of beer. She does talk a lot about sanitation and cleanliness in her talk. And um, in the when she's done talking in the question and answer section, um, I think someone brings up that question, too, of how important is sanitation to brewing beer. And she mentions that it's critically important to have a good, high-quality beer that we, that we know of, what we think it's, a beer is supposed to taste like. Because beer, you know, in the 1700s, 1600s, tasted very different than the beer that we taste today. Sure. And I think a lot of that comes from 
like that control you're talking about and understanding it more. And I think that happens with a lot of foods in general, whereas sure there is something to old world traditions and and ways of preparing any kind of food for a minute or not or drink. But at the same time, there sometimes things get better over time, you know, when uh, like, uh, especially things that have been done one way, such as, as coffee, I would say arguably people keep getting better with farming practices and brewing and roasting and everything along the the lines everyone's gotten better at. And Mm -hmm. so I think that same with beer or anything else, people have gotten a lot better with experimenting with knowledge, with different stuff. It is still amazing though, before people even knew what microbes were or what yeast was or any, any of these things that they were still able to make all these fermented products and just not knowing what's going on, but still being able to, to make controls that create specific things. It may not be as fine tuned as what we have today, but they were still able to make, uh, make adjustments and just based on trial and error, which is, it's, it's kind of amazing, especially with as much science that we can lean back on now. Right. Uh And it's all, it goes back to perception and taste. Like if it doesn't taste good, it doesn't matter if it's the most beautiful symbiotic relationship between yeast and bacteria or, or even mold. Um, you know, it's all about how we taste it and perceive it. So it's, it's, and, and a lot of that also has to do with like cleanliness and sterility. And it's just a really interesting, uh, generality of all of these things that come together to make a fermented product that everyone likes. Yeah. And and I think that that's the, the, the most important thing with any of this kind of stuff is that if, if a person, if, if person's at home, making fermented foods and then the the product doesn't turn out or there is some kind of contamination, there is mold, there is mushiness, the texture, the flavor, just something isn't quite right, whether it's technically contamination or just off flavors by stressing different bacteria or yeast, like kind of what we we're talking about last time. It's it's just a place where a person doesn't need to know the science behind it necessarily. Follow follow the taste. Chase the taste and and try and just figure out where uh, try something different next time or figure out what variables there are and then uh, limit all of them but one and then try and change it and then uh, be a little scientist at home or just do a bunch of research and read about it and then find someone and, and figure out. I mean, it's pretty easy on the internet too nowadays to skip a lot of the, the trial and error if a person doesn't want to because search for the issue and most likely there's someone else that has blogged about it or asked in a forum about the same issue in any kind of ferment. Right. Right. So a person huh. doesn't have to be a scientist. They just, you know, just, just figure out what, what the cross, the, the contamination is. But, uh, but that, actually that's another thing, cross contamination. Um, I like kind of a, like a, a Franken ferment of sorts is if a person's fermenting a lot of different things in their house, which a lot of home fermenters are at least, uh, what's the issue with cross contamination? And, uh, for the most part, it, I haven't had too much issue, although I have had things go wrong. So I'm maybe not the best one to, to say, because I try a lot of different things, but I can't even imagine what my, my house is like with all the different microbes that are in the air and the walls and especially in, in kitchen and in, in, in ba- parts of my basement. Is there from your studies much issue for something like that with, with things, uh, with microbes intermingling over time? Uh, I, pa- I, I think, um, from, from like the home side of fermenting foods, I don't see much of a problem with con, Across contamination, I guess it's taking uh, bacteria that doesn't necessarily belong in this fer- ferment or this fermentation, and it goes over to a different fermentation. I think that could be a good thing. It could bring on that added flavor slash texture that you were looking for. You may not even realize it, but it could also go the wrong way and create bad flavors and textures. But um, from an industrial standpoint, for food uh, for food fermentation. Uh, yeah, it has a huge effect because that can be monitored. Um, that can be de- – you can figure out that this – you know, most food products that you buy at the store are standardized. So if you buy yogurt in California, it's going to – the same brand is going to taste exactly the same in, say, uh, Wisconsin. Um, and you can you can find – you can determine that um, 
So that's a big problem in the food industry industrially. But for the home side of it, I don't see if it is as much of as, as a detriment that may just add some more character and flavor. But it could be it could be a problem if you're trying to get continuous consistency from batch to batch to batch from, you know, from week to week to week to week. Very true. And yeah, and I think a lot of home fermenters aren't necessarily I mean, that's some of the the joy of well, not always, but I find it kind of the exciting thing of if there's slight differences, I want to know how those differences came to be, but I'm not disappointed with them unless it tastes bad. But at the same time, I mean, I don't I don't need consistency and that's why I do a lot of things at home and do it myself because I'm not a consumer that wants to go and get the exact same thing all the time for a lot of the things that I consume. Um, mm-hmm. I, I want that kind of slight difference. And, uh, and I think it, yeah, it definitely matters with on the industrial scale when dealing with as many microbes as some of these fermenting food places are, are businesses are, are creating that there is bound to be so much. I, I would just imagine so many microbes in the air that, it's very important to kind of control those environments. And I think it's kind of the same stuff with anything I understand about sourdough that say, if a person gets sourdough culture from someone else, a starter culture, or they order a starter culture that's supposedly hundreds of years old or been passed down or different, whatever it is that eventually it's going to morph into the environment where it is being cultured currently. Um, and that the, 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 that even starting a starter culture fresh in a person's home with flour and, and, and water, it's going to at first have different native yeast and bacteria in the air that are going to populate it. And it's going to be a little bit more of a wild west of this is a good substrate that these microbes can be in. And then they're going to, they're going to party and do their thing. And then eventually they're going to come to some kind of symbiosis and, and, certain yeast or otherwise are going to dominate. Um, and then it's going to simplify more over time as far. That's as far as I know. Do you know anything different with sourdough? No, I think that you hit the nail on the head. Um, that's how I see it too. If you create your own sourdough starter, it is a cornucopia of lots of different types of yeasts and bacterias. And then eventually there is some sort of dominating yeast and dominating bacteria that live together in unison and then they create, um, you know, the sourdough taste and texture and consistency and, uh, you know, the rise from the yeast to make it rise. So, and then that's, I guess, where you would have to worry about contamination because once you get to that point where you have this like ideal, um, uh, you know, starter or, um, uh, like medium or whatever you want to call it, if something else gets in there that you don't like via cross-contamination, that's when you have the problem. And then it's kind of like you have to start all over from square one um, from the home side, um, from the industrial side, you can do lots of different tricks um, to uh, weed out the, the contaminant um, or start all over. But, you know, from the home side, it's it's different. Um, but yeah, I mean, so you hit the nail on the head about the sourdough. Same with kombucha with your scobies and stuff. That can be, you had that kind it sounds like you had that experience, not a, that with uh, the cupboard kombucha scoby, but that's more of just air contaminant, not necessarily cross-contamination. Yeah. I mean, that one I think was more of a, just, it ran out, the scoby was running out of food. And so something else that liked that super acidic environment was able to kind of just wait there for some, uh, an even better environment or, or more food. So, I mean, or, or just was just, there were just weren't as many of them. They just kind of died off and there wasn't anything contaminating it. It's just, it was when the time came that I had sweet tea water that something else took on quicker. And, and mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think that at on the home scale, while it's not possible to extract or weed out some of those different things, which I didn't realize that's kind of cool. And, but as um, backups of things, even if it's not an ideal backup, even if freezing or refrigerating isn't necessarily the ideal backup of what's going to keep something exactly right. I mean, my, my wife recently had the experience of her sourdough um, disappearing, most likely accidentally got tossed or something in the, the switching over of, of making uh, mm-hmm. sourdough bread. And then, 
that was kind of sad because we really liked the taste of that, that bread. And so then it was the process of her trying to make new sourdough starter that for some reason, a couple different times got contaminated. And now finally, we just had our first bread this last weekend uh, from a fresh one. And so it still doesn't have all the, the, the flavor that, that we were accustomed to. So, you know, it would have been nice if we'd had something in the freezer, it may not have had been as um, viable, but and maybe it would have. I mean, I guess it depends on the. I know sometimes yogurt starters work that way, and sometimes they don't. It depends on how long they've been in the refrigerator or freezer. Um, I've got kefir grains. I've had those in the refrigerator for over a year, and then I've been able to uh, re- get them to start growing again uh, once I put them in fresh milk. But everyone, and then I've also had kefir grains not work. So it's one of those things where I think as many backups as a person could have, kind of like digital computer or anything, the more backups of something that's important. Like sometimes people have their sourdough starters named and otherwise. And so if they lose it, 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 you know, they at least would like a a carbon copy in the, in the freezer. So I'd say at the home level, backup things that are, are important. Otherwise they, they might get contaminated sometime and not be reversible. Right. Right. Um, and that's a good point to have. I've, I've never, um, made backups of any of my ferments, um, or cultures, but I mean, that's a good point to look into if you have the the space and then the availability to do that that's pretty ideal plus another thing yeah, um and, and if you have if a, you have oh sorry i was just going to say cryogenic freezer or anything like that that might even be better but oh yeah that would be amazing if you had a cryogenic freezer in your you know garage um but the other thing about freezing or cooling or putting anything in the refrigerator is once you have that ideal culture it inhibits contamination as well like it's it's in your mind, perfect. Um, uh, so that's a great way to inhibit other things from growing because the it the it's going to keep putting it in the refrigerator or freezer is going to keep um, other types or sources of bacteria, molds, yeasts from growing. Um, you'll still have your culture itself there, and it and it's not going to grow at all if it's in the freezer or very slowly if it's in the refrigerator. Um, so that's a way to keep down contamination. Well, yeah. Like the, what is it? Sander Katz's uh, term of a um, fermentation slowing device uh, is, is a refrigerator and, and it, it, and it's true. It, it just slows it down. And, um, and, and yeah, I guess I don't think of that a lot of times, but if we want to really look at contamination in a really broad spectrum, uh, kombucha that's been out for too long while not a contaminant, it's going to turn more to vinegar and it's not going to be enjoyable. So it's contaminated with the good bacteria, the byproduct of the good bacteria, the thing that's good at one level, too much of it's too bad. Same thing with sauerkraut can get too uh, acidic and then it's no longer enjoyable. It's not really contaminated, um, but it, it, the flavors off. So I, yeah, definitely using the, the refrigerator and freezer to combat contamination and off flavor is very important. Is there anything else you can think of with uh, that's like uh, anything, anything else with either the beer uh, beer talk? I mean, I guess we didn't really have a whole lot of time to get, even get back to that. But no, I I just I would recommend people watching um, not necessarily if you love beer and you love the science behind beer, um, yeah, but I just even, to listen to. Oh, uh, sorry. Just, just listening to Charles Bam Bamforth, who uh, is also uh, gives a little talk about um he talks briefly about hops and um, the grains, and that's mostly what his research um, from UC Davis is about. But um, it just kind of opens your eyes of that there are so many different science avenues um, to that you can take. And he, he just gives a very interesting talk. Um, and his, the question and answer series, I think, was very interesting in my side, just hearing, you know, you, you listen to a talk and you have a ton of questions. And um people talk or ask questions and that sparks more questions and you just have a desire to figure out what the answers are. So, um, I would definitely recommend people watching it. It's very interesting. Yeah. I made it through everything about the sec, the last 15 minutes of questions, but there are a lot of questions at the end. And, and that is, again, I, I like questions a lot of times in, in those kind of presentations and, um, and, and then also just paying attention to the microbes, uh, after hours talks in general. I mean, there are other things. I mean, I think one was about like how microbes could take over the, the government, uh, like some, uh, bioterror kind of microbes, different things like that. And they've had other mm-hmm. things. So they're just after hour 
discussions are just more a little slightly more casual very intriguing and interesting and and another thing with uh, charles bamforth is he i'll put it in the show uh, show notes as well he wrote a book that i've uh read over the last few years just not straight through it's just more of a textbook but food fermentation and microorganisms it's a very good book on all kinds of things in 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 the intro he does talk about how he's a he's a beer guy but the book itself covers um a large large broad range of ferments it's more based towards food the food industry and uh probably uh food scientists uh, but i it's it's a it's a good book to get a little bit more information on some of these things if you really want to dive deeper. Yeah, I I mean, I'm excited. I I'm excited about purchasing this book and and reading it. Um just for my own knowledge, it's always good to brush up on information too, so. Yeah, and I think that uh with contamination that we we covered a good amount. I'm sure we'll always come up with more things and when we talk about specific ferments again, there's always there's always room to talk about what went wrong. So but otherwise, I feel like we covered it. Wanna... I think so, too. I, I, I think that, I mean, we could go on for probably another few hours talking about contamination and um, cleanliness versus sterility and everything like that. But for who would have thought for now, I think we generally. Yeah. For now, I think we generally hit every topic. Um, but if anyone has anything else that they would like to comment on or question about, we, we would love to hear about it. Yeah, we'd love to follow up on contamination. It's it's a it's an exciting topic, um, and uh, well, and uh, if you do have any of those questions or comments, you can leave them uh, in. Uh, you can leave them on, directly on the the website at firmup. You can find the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash thirty six, and there there's actually uh, a place to leave comments. You can leave them there, or you can send us an email, or um, hit us up on twitter at firm up or facebook at firm up and uh any, pretty much anywhere else you can find us at firm up and uh, or find all those links on firmup.com and until next time firm up <laughs>